tonight we're going to be looking at the idols of individualism and choice and even the idol of instant gratification. I want you to think with a critical eye, maybe in your life these aren't idols. You might even say, I'm not sure they're idols at all. But we're going to be looking at the subject of societal idols. We're going to be looking at things in our society that cause us to turn away from God. We've been looking at idols that are much more personal to us. Uh, these idols are much more subtle because you might not think, I worship instant gratification or I worship individualism. That would be odd to say. So we could easily discard them and say, I don't even know if they're idols, but they're societal and they creep into our thinking. And tonight, I just want you to be a little bit open-minded. No, scratch that. How about a little bit more open-hearted? And work a little bit with me to see, do these attitudes that are soaked up from the culture around us influence my faith? And in that way, they start to change the faith that we practice, which could lead to idolatry, worshiping a God that's different than the one revealed to us in Scripture. So that's kind of the task that we undertake when we look at societal idols. That's what we're doing. So as Morgan mentioned in the final week, Morgan's going to kind of wrap up with a little bit of more practical help on refocusing. If we're supposed to not worship these idols, we might refocus our efforts in other ways to worship God in a better way. And I'm going to end a little bit tonight on the folly of worshiping idols. What's wrong with worshiping idols? Look at that. So just to kind of keep us on the same place, we've defined an idol as anything that's more important to you than God, that absorbs your heart and imagination, or really gives you something that God should be giving you. So keep that in mind as you think about what we're talking about tonight. So the question on the screen is, can individualism, instant gratification, and choice be considered idols? I mean, can they even be classified in that way? We'll see if we can answer that question. Let's start with individualism. I have three points on this that I think might help to frame our mind. The first is that I think as Americans, we're taught to worship an archetype of an individual. And that individual is always standing on his or her own against something, fill in the blank, against corruption, against nature, against other people, against the government. There's always this idea of an individual. Maybe it's the classic cowboy archetype. Maybe it's the classic archetype we see in films over and over and over, where there's always a reward for the individual who stands up and they do it alone and they do it against all odds. And we always cheer for that individual. It's deeply ingrained in our society. I don't think we would quibble much with the fact that Americans, by and large, compared to other cultures, are really individualistic. Okay, that's a cultural norm. That's a cultural idol. But I would propose to you that Christianity can't be understood or experienced. Christianity cannot be really understood or experienced outside of a communal relationship. And the main communal relationship, if not the communal relationship, is the local body, the local church. That's the way it was meant to be lived out. Now you can plug in right there our whole series on the purpose of the church because it expanded on that. But one thing I think we can say for sure, I don't think, and I can't find evidence anywhere, that Christianity was meant to be lived out as an individual sport. It was not meant to be lived out that way. It was not meant to be experienced that way. So these two are directly at odds with one another. And so that leads me to the third point. 
I believe that individualism warps our beliefs and practices and leads to worshiping a different God. That's kind of a radical claim. So I could just put that on the screen. You could skip it. But I'm actually saying that when you are steeped, soaked, maybe is a better word, when you're soaked in individualism that you get from the culture around you, it can lead you to worshiping a slightly different God. It can lead your practice to be warped. I think that last point is good enough that I'm actually going to kind of focus on it for a little bit and build a little bit more underneath it. Because I think I could just say that and you could just say, I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know if I understand it. Let me build a case for it and see if these things strike home to you. Think about this. Individualism leads us to believe we don't need to be part of a local church. You ever feel the temptation? I don't even know if I need to do that. Or that our faith is just as valid without the only community that Christ ever initiated, which is being part of his local body. When you struggle with the temptation of, do I even need to live out my faith in the midst of a church? Do I even need to belong? We struggle with that word. Even in our series on the purpose of the local church, we all struggled with one deeper issue. What about membership? What about belonging? What about commitment to a community of believers? Is that required? Do I have to go that far? The only reason we would even ask that question is because we're individualistic. We're wondering if we could just live out our faith. Isn't it just enough for me to know who God is? Where did we get that idea? We weren't born with it. Ironically, if you go to other countries where community is strong, there's not even a doubt about belonging to a community of believers. In fact, the struggle in most countries is that people go to church when they don't even believe in God. The struggle is just the opposite of our struggle because they're so used to community and living together. So our societal idol is the exact flip of that. We're so individualistic, we can't understand why we'd be a part of anything. How about this? Individualism leads us to believe that we alone, or our church alone, can save the world. Whatever we're doing is the most important thing for us to be doing. How do you identify this in yourself? Let me be clear. I don't think passion is wrong. I don't think focusing on something is wrong. I don't think having a purpose or a mission or searching for meaning is wrong. But try ever taking that away from somebody and see how much they cling to it. See how defensive we get because we believe that what we're doing is the most important thing. Does individualism make whatever we're doing so important that every other thing has to rotate around what we've decided is important? Here's another way that individualism affects us. It leads us to want to hear special revelation from God for every part of our life. To the exclusion of reading the scriptures and deliberating together, which is the model that you see in the book of Acts. That people came together, they listened to the apostles' teaching, they read the scriptures together, they deliberated, they lived their life together. What is it that makes Americans so prone to want to hear specifically from God? And I'm not saying that he doesn't speak. We covered that in our Hearing God series. But the very fact that that question is one of the most asked questions and the fact that we search so constantly for special revelation and the fact that so many Americans report that special revelation is a very important thing to their faith. Why is that? In a way we're saying because the scriptures aren't good enough for me. Those were written to everybody else, but I have my own relationship with God. I have my own individual relationship with God and it needs to be based on him speaking to me about things that are about me. 
That's individualism. So even our faith is kind of shaped, warped, to fit the mold of an individualistic society. I would make a case that the things I've just put on the screen, you could probably say, kind of contrary to scripture in some ways. Yes? So a little closing on the second point and what exactly how that, like us believing that what we're doing is the most important thing relates to it warping our beliefs and practices. Like I'm just kind of, could you expand on the second point a little bit because I'm still a little confused about it. Sure, I think you could put the second one into kind of a form of Lone Ranger Christianity, the exclusion of the life of the body itself. You could even see it in churches. I mean, you could see it as churches start to really do very well in certain areas. They actually have no idea what other churches are doing, and they don't really care because they see that somehow there's like a special light from heaven that's descending on them, and everything is about that particular church, right, or that particular group of people. But I see it in individuals as well. So, I mean, it's, it's ironic that you can actually have a community of people who are so individualistic that it's just about their community, right? I mean, that's almost kind of hard to imagine, but I see it so often that it's not hard to imagine. Yeah, right. so you're, like the failure of like, churches to communicate with each other, like local churches not having any communication or even like... Global. I mean, churches within a city don't communicate with one another. But you have to say, is it just because they don't like the other churches? No. Actually, if you get to the very root of it, what it is... You don't even know what the other churches are about. I mean, it's like the only thing that matters is what I'm doing, what we're doing, what's happening here. Uh, it's all about us. And so when you ask them, like, well, what about the churches down the road? They'd say, I don't know anything about them. <laughs> it's not that they don't like them. They just wouldn't even think for a moment to consider them. Because God clearly is dealing with each person or each church individually. And I think that is very much steeped in individualism. And, and I feel like, like you'll notice more often than not, the churches that are bigger, like, you know, bigger churches, very successful churches, you know, struggle with that more because it's like, well, we're obviously doing something right. We're so successful. But, like, I've noticed that, like, in, like, smaller churches that maybe aren't doing so well, it's like they're they're more apt to, like, reaching out to, like, get more people to, to be connected more. But, you know, it's, it, a lot of times it's like, okay, well, we did something right. We're so successful. We have big numbers. And, you know, we've got, you know, fog. And so... <laughs> I see this working with individuals, by the way, in another way. Like, I mean individuals, one person. I've had lots of people come up to me and say, like, I have a passion to do this one thing, whatever it might be. I've used the example in the past of, like, I have a passion to bring bicycles to a country in Africa because that will help them to get from town to town or create commerce or whatever. So I'll say, great, you know there's an organization that already does that. You should join them since you have a passion in that area. The fact that they struggle and that becomes kind of an unthinkable thing is where individualism is steeply rooted in us, right? The fact that they need to start their own organization because they see themselves as following this passion line. It's like, I'm not disagreeing with the passion. I'm not even disagreeing with the aim of that passion. I'm just telling you that there's already somebody who does that, uh, that needs help, and then you can join that effort and deepen what's already existing as opposed to constantly shallowing out our faith by just expanding miles wide and an inch deep. But the fact that there's a struggle is individualism. It's us feeling like I, I, because with I, am going to do this, right? And we see ourselves that way almost like when we're done doing it, the credits are going to roll, right? And there'll be great music by John Williams at the end. Yeah. How are you supposed to know when you are supposed to do something? I mean, I think God has given 
many individuals' ministries, and usually he groups them with other individuals, you know, so it doesn't have to be a Lone Ranger thing, but I think there is a lot of space for, you know, new things to be created, so I'm wondering what you think. I think like every other idol we've covered, you have to look and say there's nothing wrong with the feeling about wanting to innovate or to break new ground. Just like there's nothing wrong with using money, there's nothing wrong with success in and of itself. Like all the idols we've covered, this I would say the same thing. But like every other idol, you gotta watch the little needle. And when your heart starts to struggle over the issue of not, I wanna see something happen, but you realize that you're struggling because someone else is doing it, you've got to do your own thing, that's when I see the needle moving. And that's when you go, there's part of the issue. It may not mean that you have to give up your ideas and join something every single time. It does mean that whenever you feel your heart being tugged in this way, and this series is one of those where only you know, when you're sitting down and say, does that speak about me? Is it true that I feel like I need to be the one who's doing it? And then it would be just, not unthinkable, but it would be a struggle for me to come under somebody else and take that and do it. And if it's a struggle, then you've got to struggle with individualism. It doesn't answer the final question of whether you do your own thing or not. But it does talk about the attitude of your heart that you've actually allowed a little too much of society to creep in. Uh, some people have fairly criticized the, the American church for being a little too entrepreneurial. Not because they're just trying you know, try to win people to Christ through new and innovative ways, but because the need to innovate and the need to create new things and the need to be in control of it actually drives whether there's a need for that or not. So that's an attitude. It's not, a, it's not about the outcome. It's a struggle. I mean, these are not easy ones where you go, that's in, that's how out. Do how do you check yourself, though? Like, okay, so let's say I'm in this position and... I feel that, like, oh my God, I'm totally, I'm totally, you know, um, making this about me. How do you fix it? Is it just something that you do, like, like you know, you pray about it, you work on it in that way, like, like, like relationally with God, or should there be an actual action with, like, letting go of something, let like go of the ministry, let go of the, like, no, I feel like that would be kind of destructive, maybe depending on how deep the root is of your individualism? I don't know. The first step, I think, is you have to confess any of these things to God. I would even suggest you confess it to someone else. Because what you're saying is, I'm confessing that the attitude of my heart is driving me to replace what is otherwise good with something that's becoming a problem. And then whether you do something about it or not, uh, I believe is usually a productive thing. In this particular case, for example, I'm not saying that the outcome is that you're not going to do what you set out to do, uh, but I would really consider the discipline of coming under somebody if you believe, if you believe that you have an issue with individualism. If, if that's not the issue, then I wouldn't solve it that way. I wouldn't say that just because someone else has done it, we all must come under them. All I'm saying, and let me be very clear, is when you feel the struggle, it means the issue is there. Not when you think of the idea. Not when you ultimately decide you're going to do it on your own. That's not what I'm saying. When you feel the struggle and you think, hmm, it would be strange for me to actually even come under somebody. If all the circumstances were right, just because I don't want to do that, that's where the issue is. Ray, did you have a question? No, I was just going to comment on Morgan's question of what you do like, when you identify the individualism. And 
I would say like identifying it as like if you think about that time in your life and it gives you such fulfillment to think about fulfilling that mission that you hear the music and you watch your life's movie and you realize that like you think that's where your life's purpose is and that that, that activity is what's going to give you purpose that is eliminating God out of the picture and I think that's where it becomes an idol is when the mission itself starts to exclude God and like give you these unrealistic expectations of fulfillment with the music and like your life's going to be this movie if, if this is how it all works out but that doesn't leave God leave space for God in the picture. Yeah let's use an example from your life. You look at a place like Citrus College there's no real movement of a Christian club on campus. Somebody has tried it, they haven't worked. Somebody else tried it, didn't work. You think, I think somebody should try this again. I see that as innovative, right? I see that as something that requires effort, something that you do. If you saw two groups that were already there doing it, and you looked and thought, I think we need to do something totally different. I'm not even saying you shouldn't do the third group. I'm saying you have to at least struggle. Why am I deciding? Not even from a, am I duplicating resources as bad stewardship? That's, those are questions too. But if, why, is, why am I deciding that something must take place there that I am responsible for? Is it really that those things are not reaching people? Is it really that they're really that deficient? Or could it be? And it's a could it be question that I am wanting it to be something that is my own. And if even you might conclude, no, it's not that at all. I really do see something that's not being met that needs to be done. You go, okay. But that's where the struggle comes in. So it's not against being innovative, but I just see that so much of what drives us is the need often to be a messianic hero. And that isn't really a bad interpretation of scripture. It's an American <laughs> view that's imposed upon scripture, right? We come to scripture after we've already inherited from the culture. Here's one more. Individualism leads us to believe that our possessions belong to us and allow us to withhold from others in need. So if you haven't seen individualism in action, you see it there. Uh, we've looked at this verse so many times in this group, it should be memorized sooner. We're going to sing a song about it. From Acts 2. But once again, look at just the key parts of it. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions and gave to everyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Jumping to Acts 4, two chapters later, it says, And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there was no needy persons among them. For from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to everyone who had need. Yes, it's true that we talked about this kind of concept when we talked about the idol of money. But think about it. There's another flip side to that same coin, no pun intended. Individualism is one of those things that says, you know, we're self-sufficient. We need to be on our own. I need to provide for myself. I need to stand on my own. I don't belong to a community. Maybe it's just as simple as this. Sure, I'll attend the community meetings. But there's no way that I'm actually going to give my household I'm not going to actually go that far as to actually blend, share, commune with others. I want to have community without the communing. I don't want that part. That's individualism. Yes, it might be greed, it might be all sorts of other things, but it's individualism. There's a formula that you could bring out of this. Look at it. 
when the believers had everything in common, everyone's needs were met, and there were no needy people. Today, when believers withhold what is theirs, uh, there's plenty of needs, and there's plenty of needy people. We talked about this even under the idol of money. But think about it now from an individual standpoint. If you think, hey, I might not even have a problem with money. Money's not my idol. I don't really care about money, but I'm not giving it to you. <laughs> I'm not sharing it with you. It's mine. Uh, it is a pretty warped view of what God intended, not just of our faith, but of what God intended. Ray. I'm just going to say, not only does it does individualism create a problem giving of ourselves, I think it also creates a problem of even asking for help so that even needy people within our church communities don't even know how to ask for help because there's so much shame and so much guilt involved in the idea of needing help because that means that you're not self-sufficient, you failed the American dream, you're not living up to your potential as an American citizen. Like, I would think that the needy people among us wouldn't even know where to begin to ask for help. Not only are we not willing to give of ourselves, but maybe not even willing to ask it could be you could have a little bit too much pride from that individualism to say that I'm needy and it is true that in many churches people have difficulty receiving that comes from individualism right I can stand on my own and I can be sufficient and it's strange for me to be in need it could be other things too right but I think it's a complete flip of the way it was supposed to be there are so many needs around us but that's because none of us are taking care of those needs. I mean, we would say there's an abundance of needs because we give and we're good with it, but that's about all. Any other questions? Yes. Matt? Um, it seems like an answer to this might be the unification of the churches, but we've seen like denominations try to do that. So how do you think denominations relate to individualism? And it can't really happen, like the unification of the church. Well, I think you could say that in some part, not fully, but in a great part, that denominations began because of an individualistic attitude, right? I mean, you could see that denominations are actually accelerating in their development and the number of them. I mean, it's not just a small acceleration. It's actually exponential. Uh, and most of it happened in the 20th century. Uh, and a lot of it happened in the U.S. Uh, so... I think it's not the only reason. There are good reasons for denominations. We've covered them before. Maybe it prevents infighting. Uh, maybe there are multiple ways to worship God that really should be expressed. But the fact that there's something like 41,000 of them or something is the last count that I saw is pretty disturbing. It does go back to the, we need to do it our way. Uh, you could say that that led to some of the churches we see now that are like, you know, they're entities in and of themselves. Uh, it came out of that. So yeah. Now, could you unify people to do that? That would be one of those disciplines to do it. I agree with you. Probably not going to be possible. Uh, which speaks a lot of our stubbornness about sin. I'm not saying that we should have one denomination. I just think there could be some efforts to resolve some of these things. One of the books I was reading kind of made a comment. The fact that it's best described as when we think everything is mine. And it's all about me, Right? And they were making an analogy to a kid. That's kind of how kids are. They think everything's about them. They want everything for theirs. They have trouble sharing. And I started to relate that to the image of God. I mean, if, I, if, if my thesis here is that individualism warps what God intended, warps our relationship with him, is that really true? Does that hold up? I started thinking just about that example. So God has given us everything. God has shared everything freely freely given us everything and yet we can't share 
back either to him or to one another. And I think most of it is because we see the world rotating around the I and the me and the mind. That example about kids really brought up one that Christine and I had. You know, Christine, because she's speaking mostly Russian, almost all Russian, and because my Russian is not that great, it's hindered our relationship in some way. So one of the most precious things that I have with her is when we sit down together and we can share something. Like from the youngest age that I remember, one of the most precious moments we have together is every time I eat a bowl of cereal, no matter what she's doing, she'll come running over and sit next to me and wants to share my cereal. And she loves this cereal, and I love it just because we get to actually connect on something where she'll sit next to me and I'll give her cereal and we eat. And this has been going on, obviously, she's a little bit over two years old, so it's been like a year and a half of her doing this. So the other day, we gave her like a little muffin. She loves these little muffins. And she was eating her little muffin, and I walked over and I asked her if she would share a little piece of the muffin. And she said, no, it's mine. <laughs> You know, I got to tell you, she's, she's a two-year-old. I'm about to be 43. <laughs> I should know how this works, right? Like, I was hurt. <laughs> and so I was trying to teach her to share. So I said, no, you have to share. Daddy shares with you like you should share with me. She burst out crying and oh. screaming. <laughs> And then she didn't want any part of the muffin anymore because there was no way she was going to share any of it. And I was bummed. I mean, it's like one of those few times where I think, like, what could a two-year-old do that would bum you out? I was bummed. Because I, the basis of our relationship, if not in great language, you know, me, I have yet to begin her on the whole Exodus talks, you know, like, we haven't done that yet, you know. Right now, it's, it's simple and it's pure and it's about this relationship of sharing and I was stunned that she would not reciprocate. Again, she's a two-year-old. I started translating that to how this whole thing warps our relationship with God, who has shared everything, even of himself, to the point of death for us. And he must look at us with an equally disappointed, broken heart sometimes and think, I don't understand. I could have poured out all of this. I've, yeah, I've shared everything with you, and you have difficulty sharing with one another just to take care of needs that are in your midst, that are right in front of you, of people who you profess to be friends with. Odd. I, I was sitting here and, and a word popped up into my mind while you were speaking. I was thinking of entitlement. Like, I feel like that is like a big word right now in the Christian church where I feel like, I mean, maybe people aren't even that aware of it, but I feel like as Christians, we've developed this entitlement about what we deserve and what we should have and how we should be. And so I feel like that totally creates this idea of like individualism of like, okay, well, I'm entitled to, you know, to have like the best everything. I'm entitled to have the supermodel, you know, wife or husband who's, who loves Jesus and likes to give up their time on the weekends. And, you know, and I'm entitled to have that nice home and I'm entitled to have a great job because I love Jesus and that's what I should have. But I would quibble with you and say that's not something that's happening because of Christianity. I would say to you that that is the American ideal and it shows how weak we are in our faith mm -hmm. that we allow this cultural idol to overwhelm the power of the gospel. 
So rather than the gospel transforming us to be totally different than the culture around us and to actually speak to it and try to change that, we actually are overwhelmed by the society and we take everything we have in our culture and we just seek to apply it into the church. And we, whatever doesn't fit, we actually toss it out. So yes, we do want salvation because it seems good. And yes, we do want somebody who shares our beliefs but really what we're saying is I'm going to be shaped by my own culture. That's individualism and that's the cultural idol. And I want my Christianity read in light of all of that. Just think about that. Let me push forward a little bit. This one I wasn't even sure was an idol. Instant gratification, I thought, that's not an idol. That's just like a sin. Or that's just like a... I mean, really, think about it for a moment. We have a temptation to call every sin an idol because it's easier than if I just say that's a sin in, in your life. I could say it's an idol and that way you're kind of like, yeah, so I could do a little bit of it but not too much of it, right? <laughs> there are some things that are just flat out sin and we should call it out that way. Like when we talked about the idol of romantic love, you could also say, yeah, but there are some things that are just out of bounds scripturally, right? So you, you can't say, well, yeah, I have a little premarital sex. It's kind of an idol in my life. No, that's a sin. Maybe an idol too. But it's a sin. So I was looking at this one thinking, yeah, I don't know. Instant gratification is an idol? Is it something I worship? But remember, it's societal. We're talking about societal idols tonight. Something in the society that actually warps our faith, changes the way that we actually practice or believe our faith, almost causes us to worship a different kind of God, a different version of God because of what's going on. So here's some things that might help you identify. Is this even going on? I say instant gratification, it warps our time horizon and leaves us impatient with God and others. That is where I think instant gratification from our society changes our faith. Here's some ways to identify it. I'm just going to say, ask these questions. Just think about this for a moment. You ever ask this question where you say, how long should we wait on the Lord when praying for something in particular? You ever asked a how long question? Like, how long should I pray? Like a day, three days? I've had this question asked recently. Like, what if I pray for something for like two weeks? Should I just give up? Am I bugging God? Well, I don't know the answer, and I'm not trying to recommend the answer. I will tell you there's some answers in Scripture that you should look at about this. I'm just trying to say, isn't the question interesting? The fact that the question begins with, how long should I pray? I mean, somebody could just say, for the rest of your life. Why would that be weird to us? Only because we have a societal norm, a societal idol that makes us think like, hey, if you're not getting somewhere fast, it must not be God's will. I don't know anywhere in the scriptures that says that. But I know a lot of people who feel that way. Where did they get that notion from? From our society. A how long question is because we're very concerned about time and how fast things come. How about this question? How long should we walk with a friend who has difficulty overcoming a certain issue in their life? You ever wondered that? Yo, come on, man. How many times are you going to bring this up? How many times am I going to have to hear about the same thing over and over? Are you still not over this thing yet? Again, I'm not here to tell you at what point you say to somebody, hey, clearly you're not changing, or clearly this is an issue you should talk to somebody else about, or clearly you're just wallowing at this point. That's not the point. The point is, why would we even ask this question if we were not so concerned about the length of time things should take? You know, the scriptures give us words like patience long-suffering, 
perseverance, right? Those are the kind of words I remember. I don't know many words in scripture that are the equivalent of the word fast. Like your faith should be fast. Your faith should be like instant. Your faith should be like, have like, like immediate results. Like I don't see any of that describing the kind of life in Christ that we have. Even the race that we run is one for endurance, right? It's run for perseverance. Uh, they weren't thinking about the 100-yard dash in that race. It was meant to be something that you run and run well and run for a long period of time. Here's another question. You ever ask this? How many times should we forgive someone who's not been as proactive as we think they should be in changing a behavior? Even the questions of the how many times should I forgive, how many times should I put up with it, it's really more like, come on, get on with it. Shouldn't this be done already? Shouldn't we just have one talk about this and that should be it? Doesn't that change the way that we see each other and God? I mean, if there's just no, no change, I don't know how long I can do this. There's no purpose in my life. I found some biblical examples might be interesting. Like, of course, we know Abraham and Sarah couldn't wait for God's promise to happen. Tried to figure out a way to get it to happen sooner. Let's just get on with this thing. He said we're going to have a son. Maybe he didn't exactly explain how it was going to happen. I mean, he said that I would have it with Sarah. But, you know, striking about this story from Genesis 16 is it's Sarah who comes up with the solution. Hey, why don't you just have my slave girl? Let's just, I think that's probably good enough to satisfy what God wants. Right? Because it's just taken a long time. He said it was going to happen, but I know. We must be figuring out a way. Let's see if we can help God. Here's another example you see in scripture of this kind of impatience, this kind of desire to get on with it. Saul is about to face the Philistines. Big battle is coming. He knows that Samuel is supposed to offer the sacrifice before the battle begins in 1 Samuel 13. But it's been seven days. Samuel said he'd be there. It's been seven days. He's still not there. And here's the kicker. The Philistine army is gathering. And Saul's men are starting to desert. I mean, we got to get this battle going or I'm going to lose more men. They're getting scared. And we're just sitting around the camp waiting for some holy man to show up and offer the sacrifice. I mean, I know the sacrifice is important, but we got to get on with it. And people are leaving. So what does Saul do? He waits and he waits and he waits. And Samuel is late. It's true. But he says, you know what? I'm going to lose too many men. He grabs the sacrifice and does it himself. Anyone remember what the penalty was for Saul for doing that? He lost his kingship. Samuel says, you're not the man that God wants if you would seek to hurry up in this way. Take matters into your own hands. Just get it done. Yeah, I can feel the stress of watching your people abandon you and thinking, come on, he's late. Contrast that, for example, with an example like Simeon. A man who just waited his entire life for what? In Luke chapter 2, it says he just waited his entire life just to witness, just to see the Messiah. It's the purpose of his whole life. It was the joy of his whole life. The whole thing that he wanted was that. He was promised that it would happen. And as a very, very old man, he finally gets to see it. Day after day after day, just waiting for this one thing to happen. Not worried about the time, knowing that it's just going to happen. So when we give up on God too easily, give up on prayer when we decide that God doesn't move fast enough for us, for people who leave their faith behind because they don't see that God is acting on their timetable, where do they get these ideas from? Societal idols. This may not mean that you have an idol. It might just mean you're an impatient person. (laughs) 
I will say that even before I present these, but just think about these for a moment. Because they do impact things like how quickly you expect things. And I think if you expect everything fast, uh, you will not have the patience or the perseverance to live a life with God unless you're getting instant affirmations every few minutes that it's working. It would be very difficult for you to spend years and years waiting on the Lord if some of these things are true of you. One author contributed these. He says, do I buy things on credit simply because I want them now? Do I get discouraged and give up if I don't see quick results in dieting, studying, saving? Am I prone to take shortcuts in my job, my relationships, and my spiritual life? Do I tend to stop praying for something or someone when God doesn't answer quickly? I think that one, by the way, is the one I'd put the check mark next to as to how this warps our view of God. Do I make decisions quickly because I don't want to wait? Do I get angry when I have to wait in line? Do I have a hard time delaying gratification or even fasting from something for a period of time? Do you have trouble fasting? You didn't try to do it, just couldn't do it because it was just too hard? You just thought, like, this is dumb. Like, you know it should be good, it could bring something good, but you just, just don't want to do it. Do I persevere in my relationship with God? Allowing time for true transformation from within? Or do I expect that external changes will be quickly apparent? I think that one also probably hits close to how we do this. Yes? How fast do we consider quickly, though? I mean, like in the Bible times, I mean, some people waited around for years and years and years, and then stuff finally happened. I mean, so if after like a year, is that too quick? I mean... For us, a year sounds like a long time. And I think in, not just in the Bible, but I think in other places maybe that don't have this expectation that things happen as fast as they do here, that maybe a year isn't that long to be praying for something. Uh, maybe it's a lot longer, right, to keep hoping that expectation, keep it open. Yes? I think it's really interesting when you think about problems and instant gratification. My mom has been, for ever since I've been in college, doing a lot of work with Christian meditation and taking a lot of ideas from a more contemplative faith and using that as time to sit and steep in thinking and praying about things and being constantly embedded in this. So I wonder if meditation and those movements might not be more helpful for people who struggle with instant gratification problems. It's like specifically time to sit and dwell and think in things and do practices like Lectio Divina and things like that to sort of bring about patience and bring about stillness in life. I think a lot of this is about creating that time and that space to be still and not to have everything rushing, which is the time problem that I think our has a lot of. I think actually experiencing a discipline of giving things up that you expect quickly is probably one of the best things. Uh, so whatever that discipline, that form takes, to allow you to deprive yourself of things you expect to have frequently is helpful here. It's helpful. Again, let me say the reason these are not so apparent to us on face value is because these are not individual idols that we deal with. Like, like my thing is instant gratification. I wake up every morning and I need to be instantly gratified. We don't think of it that way. Rather, this is something that our society feeds to us that ultimately causes us to worship a different God. So I would say it as plainly as possible, in many churches today, people are disappointed with God because he doesn't answer prayers fast enough. Or because they prayed for a long time, like Randy was alluding to, 
which was like two weeks. And after two weeks, they gave up because clearly God is not listening. I don't see that kind of model in the scriptures. Where did we get it from? Not by reading the scriptures and following the forefathers of our faith. We got it from our society. And we applied it to create God in a different image than he really is. By expecting him to respond to our timetable. Not because we know God to be that way, but because we want him to be that way from the way our society operates. That's what makes it an idol. Let me ask you this. Can choice be an idol? I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this and beat it into the ground. Maybe I'll just ask it this way. Can too many choices be a bad thing? How can too many choices be a bad thing for those of you who are nodding? What makes too many choices a bad thing? I'm not talking about cable television now and trying to find a show among 800 channels. Yes? I think we get caught up in it. We become consumed by it, and it, it, it takes over, right? So, I mean, if you're talking about... I, because I've, I've fallen into that before, and I had so many choices, and I just became overwhelmed and, and consumed by it. Okay, yes? I think um, it allows fear to creep in. It's like, you know, fear of loss. If I take this, what if that one was the better one and I didn't do it? So your 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 focus is completely like obsessing over this uh, the right choice. What's the right choice? You know, and, you know that can happen. You know, like my roommate just got offered a new a, a job and she's freaking out over it and she's talking to me about it. And I'm like, it's it's simple. It's simple. It's clear as day that that's the better choice. But she's allowing this obsession. I mean, to the point where she's vomiting over it. And obviously, it's like, well. Your, your focus is now you know, drawn away from God and like the gift that he's given you, and you're focused so much on this choice that you have to make. I like that you said it's a gift he's given because I want to make clear that this is, again, not a bad thing. Choice is something that God gave us, right? He gave us free will. He gave us the ability to choose him. Choice is something that God ordains, but he ordains it for certain things. Our society has become a little too obsessed with choice, yes. So when we have so many choices, we spend all our time like deciding on what we're going to choose instead of actually doing anything in the long run. And we might like to start something and be like, yeah, I'll choose this. And be like, oh, you know what, I think I'll go with that. And next thing you know, you didn't do anything by the end. You just sat there trying to pick the two. Anyone ever been paralyzed by the choices and just been unable to choose? Right? You can go down to somewhere. Like I've had this experience where I've gone to a place to buy something and they had like 30 of them. And you just stand there and you just keep like looking at every one and like, you know, yeah, you know, every one of them is $20 more than the one before it. And you keep looking and, you know, after about half an hour, you just leave the store, right? I think if there are only two of them, the one was really big and one was really small, you'd walk in and in like two minutes, you'd know which one you wanted and you'd be done. So choice can be bad that way, but... We're not here to talk about whether it's smart for them to have 30 of them or not. Just think about how that works for a moment. Think about how it operates to change us and the way we start to subtly believe that we have all these choices too in our own faith. Going to something Matt said. Do the endless choices and denominations and worship styles leave me wondering if there's a better choice out there? I mean, is it that you're unable to commit to a body of believers and just throw yourself in and say, I'm actually here to serve. I'm actually here to worship God. I don't really care so much about the details. Or is it that most of the time you're like, 
is this really the best, best optimal way to do this? Is there like a way this could be a little bit better? Or you hear somebody else go, hey, yeah, I go to this church on the road. You go, what's that like? You know, and you're trying to find out if maybe that's a choice that's open and available. Maybe you could trade up. Maybe you just validate your own choice. Is that something that we use choice for? Does that warp even the way that we practice our faith, the way we commune together as Christians or not? because of all the choice that's out there. Again, choice is not bad. I could even make a case, like I said, that denominations serve a useful purpose. The question, though, is, has choice changed the way that you see your role? Has choice paralyzed you from throwing yourself fully in? One of the books I'm reading has this funny little story where the guy's on the airplane, and the stewardess comes over and goes, would you like dinner? And he says, what are my choices? And she says, yes or no. <laughs> We're so used to having like five choices for everything. Like before we even answer if we want dinner or not, like tell me what I get to choose from. She's like, you get to choose yes or no. If you see the same thing happening in a church, then you think society and these idols have overwhelmed us. We've given in to them and we've modified our own practice. That's not the way it should be. Where's the salt and light when the salt and light has been doused by our cultural idols? Here's another one. Do I find that I'm not pursuing the priorities of the Lord because I need to figure out the best choice for proceeding? So this type of paralysis isn't trying to figure out what the Lord wants us to do. Maybe because we're waiting for the thing that is the best thing for us, the optimal thing for us, maybe the best, best use of this. And again, I'm not saying stewardship is bad. You know me, that's my favorite word. I'm not saying that choosing is bad. I'm not saying that doing the best for the Lord is bad. Just the opposite. But if it has the effect of allowing us to worship choice to the point that we can't move because we're trying to optimize everything, we've defeated everything I just said that is good. Because we're paralyzed. We're like the servant who didn't know what to do with the talent and buried it. We're paralyzed by choice. And I meet people all the time who are paralyzed by all the possible things they could do. Yes, it would be nice if we could figure out what the best use of all of your talents and gifts and passions were. But in the meantime, get busy doing something that the Lord commands. Let's not let choice overwhelm that. Randy. If people use that, well, at least me sometimes, I use that kind of as an excuse to, like, I add, you know, when I figure out what, you know, the best choice, you know, from here on out, then I'll go ahead and do that, but for now, I'm just going to go ahead and do what I'm doing, you know, plug away at it, and when I figure it out, but then you never end up taking the time to, that paralyzes you, not because you can't move, but just because you, like, uh, paralyze yourself and you kind of use it as an excuse. Yeah, I see that, by the way. Um, one thing that's been said about the generation that's currently in their 20s and 30s, which is you, uh, is that there is a paralysis because there's a myth that there's an optimal choice out there. So sociologists said that a lot of people in your age believe there's an optimal choice. If I just sit around long enough, I'll be able to figure it out. Uh, earlier generations didn't have that delusion, and I think it is a delusion. Uh, I'm not saying there aren't better choices, but to really believe in the optimal, perfect, utopian choice, uh, that's why people end up spending most of their 20s searching for what that is, and they end up, by the time they're 30, they're like, I don't think it's out there. I just got to do something. And that is something that is societally going on, that people cannot move because they're looking for the best thing. And they'll take all sorts of crazy things in the meantime because they're waiting for the best thing. 
okay, that's a description of American society. I don't know that why that would describe the church, except for the fact that we worship at the same societal idol temples. We just put Jesus in the middle of it. It's the only reason I can think of, because I don't find anything in Scripture that says that. Do I believe that I have a choice about whether or not to obey the Lord? Or about whether or not I actually believe in God? Think about that for a moment. Has choice become so king in our society, the very thing that God gave us is a gift to choose. Choice is not bad. Joshua stood in front of the people and said, choose this day who you're going to follow. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Elijah stood up on Mount Carmel and said, you people need to choose, again, <laughs> which one you're going to follow, the Baals or the living God. There's always that good choice that's given, but notice how the choice is always stated. Choose God. Nobody believes in any of those, choose who you want to believe in. Nobody really believes that the other choice was just as good. Nobody really believes that what they were saying in context was, hey, whichever one you choose, totally fine, totally cool. I'm just going to choose God. That's just for me. It really wasn't the challenge. The challenge was choose God or don't, but make up your mind. We've taken choice to be something totally different. You must know people who take choice this way. It follows the that might be right for you kind of thing, maybe not right for me kind of thing. It follows that kind of idealism. We've taken choice, a gift from God, something that was meant to be used for a purpose. What was the purpose? To choose him. And used it to start to choose different things. I don't even know if I want to obey God. Or I don't know if today I feel like obeying God. Like, I don't know that we would ever want to use choice to warp who God is and what it means to be his disciple. To be in a place where we're debating and using our choice that way. Paul reminds us, we have freedom, but not license. And there is a difference. We have freedom, but not license, to just go do whatever we want. Yes? So I think as a culture, we've lost the ability to appreciate simple living and what beauty there can be in that. It's almost impossible to live a simple life. Like, I've gone, the most peaceful I've been, the easiest it's been for me to see God has been when I'm in Mexico or in India or someplace where my choices have been taken away from me. I have two pairs of clothes, so I pick <laughs> one shirt that I'm going to wear that day. That's not a big deal. My hair goes in a ponytail because I haven't showered, so that's not a choice to make. And I'm not choosing what I'm eating. So all those choices are suspended. And even what I'm doing is not my choice. And there's so much freedom in being able to let all of that go. And then you come back here and you like have to make all these choices again. But you could choose to continue living that way, right? We just and I try every single time to come back and say, okay, I'm going to live this simple life. I'm going to let go of all that, but it's culture and habit. You fall back into your old ways when it's constantly what you're surrounded by, and it's not an excuse, but that's what always happens. I think our society over here in America is a little too cutthroat in the community for the most part, unless you really get a whole group of people together to decide, hey, we're going to do this. Like, If you try to live, just relax and be like simple, like things just pass you by, and... I think it's funny, uh, if you were to actually implement a community that is self-sustaining, that like like lives off together and you know relies on each other, like in America, in our culture, in our society, that'd be considered a cult. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, or, or it would be considered a monastic community. 
I don't think that when you were a Christian in Acts 2 or 4 that anybody thought you were less crazy. I don't think that their family thought you were less crazy for selling that piece of land and giving it to a bunch of people in a cult that just began out of some weird Jewish beliefs. And somehow we look at them, we idealize that and go, oh, that's just the church. No, that was nuts. And all their family probably thought they were nuts or believed and joined them. And I think the fact that we're afraid to stand up to our own society and be nuts is why we're so ineffective. All right, let me, uh, let me close our discussion this way with a reflection from Isaiah 44. You know, one of the questions I've been asking through the series is what's wrong with idolatry anyway? Who cares? I mean, let's say these things are idols. Tonight I hoped I could show you that societal idols actually change the way we worship God or see him. That's the damage that these idols can do. But I want you to see, first of all, how God speaks in Isaiah 44 uh, about idolatry and the foolishness of idolatry. In this case, he's just saying idolatry is dumb. And if you didn't think that God had a sense of humor, you should listen to this passage because some of us probably have never read this. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. God throw down kind of a challenge there he throws down. See who is like me. And then he begins to talk about the foolishness of making idols. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol, which can profit nothing? The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. If you're missing the irony of what God is saying there, he's actually trying to point out to you like, look at this guy. He's making the idol himself, and yet it doesn't help him. He still grows faint even in the effort of making his God. Or consider an idol made out of wood. Here's what he says about that. The carpenter measures a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in human form, human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars, or perhaps a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest, or planted a pine, and the rain made it grow. It is used fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread, but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me. You are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understands to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even bake bread over its coal. The, the roasted meat I ate, shall I make a detestable thing out of what is left? 
Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? You can almost see God kind of like almost egging this on. You can almost see the attitude come out of this, these words. Like, what kind of idiot takes a piece of wood and uses half of it to make his food and the other half to make a god and then bows down to it? It's kind of a decent point for God to make. Kind of egging on all these false gods a little bit. Kind of maybe dancing around that fire, kind of mocking him. It's steeped with irony and humor. But it does point to the folly of idolatry. We said at the beginning of this series, like, we're not dumb enough to worship something made out of wood. We're not dumb enough to worship something made out of, like, iron. But we do seem dumb enough to follow every notion in our society and then remake our entire faith on its basis. So he ends this way. Remember these things, Jacob, for you, Israel, are my servant. I have made you, you are my servant, Israel. I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Ultimately, maybe our best thing to do tonight is to just pray in confession and hope that God continues to be merciful and forgets all of our sin and the way that we seek to remake him and all of our churches into the form of our culture around us. Let's pray. Lord, we offer you this moment in confession first and foremost for the fact that even the things that we do in here may be steeped in idols taken from our culture, attitudes that belong more to the fact that we're Americans or Westerners, or maybe it's because we believe in certain ideas, or maybe it's because we've been influenced by certain things in our society. So for this moment, we just sit in confession. Lord, I'm not aware of all the ways in which I remake you into the image of my own culture. But to the degree that you've opened our eyes tonight to something something that reminds us of how close we've remade you and your church and our faith to match what we have been infected with from our culture. Remake us first. Remind us of our duty to be salt and light, to be distinctive and useful, to stand apart. Give us courage, yes, even to be mocked, for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of living as your disciples. And may we then turn around to seek to restore to our own communities, our own churches, the kind of discipleship that you wanted for your body. May we first and foremost confess and repent and then bond with others to begin that renewal. Pray this in your name. Amen.